Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you are visiting with us, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here. We're glad that you're here on Friends Day, and we hope that uh, you'll be able to come back and be with us time and time again. You being here encourages us, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you also. In 1936 in Berlin, Germany, the Olympics was taking place at a time where Hitler wanted to uh, announce and really show off the supremacy of his race of people. And so it was a bit ironic and fitting for Jesse Owens that year to win four gold medals, one in the 100-meter another in the 200-meter dash, another in the long jump, and another in the 400-meter relay. Now, there was an interesting story that took place as it relates even to one of the German competitors about the long jump. You see, as he was qualifying on the day of qualifying, he leaped and he crossed the starting point. He was nervous. Jesse goes back and he leaps again, crossing the starting point two fouls. Three fouls, and he would not even be allowed to compete in this event. He was nervous. He was watching the German competitor as he was warming up, and he was jumping in the range of 26 feet, just in the warm-ups. Now, earlier that year, Jesse had already broken a record that would end up standing for the next 25 years of jumping 26 feet and 8 inches. It wasn't that Jesse couldn't do it. It was simply that he was nervous. The blonde-haired, blue-eyed German walked over. He was tall and lean. And he surprised Jesse with a friendly visit to say, Hey, you ought to be able to do this with your eyes closed. Jesse laughed and kind of agreed. He said, Look, can I give you a suggestion? Why don't you put a mark several inches back from the starting point to qualify We only have to jump over 23 feet. That's not any problem for you. And those extra few inches will give you the edge where if you do cross, it won't be a foul. He took the advice of his competitor. He marked several inches before the starting point. He qualified. The next day, he won the event. One of the first individuals to walk over shaking his hand and congratulating him in front of the entire stands and especially in front of Adolf Hitler was Luz Long, the German competitor. When Jesse was asked later about this man's kindness on this particular day, Owen said, it took a lot of courage for him to befriend me in front of Hitler. You can melt down all the medals and cups I have and they wouldn't be a plating on the 24-carat friendship I felt for Luz Long at that moment. Isn't friendship powerful? Isn't a kind deed and the right action done at the right time one of the grandest things that we can ever receive? Here's a man that had stood on the top of the podiums in the Olympics and he had worn the gold medals and yet he compares with what took place that day of if you melted down all the medals to say they couldn't be exchanged for what I appreciated that day from this man that befriended me. 
This morning, I hope all of us are individuals that realize the power of friendship, the influence of friendship, and how friendship can be something that can really propel us in the right direction in life and promote us in the right areas of life. And as we think this morning of individuals that we befriend, do we offer them, if you will, upon the highest pedestal? Are we willing to offer them our coat? Are we willing to give them our keys? Are we willing to give them a peg? Now, as I mentioned these things this morning, it may seem kind of strange to you at this point that why would he mention a coat or a robe? Why would he mention keys? Why would he mention a peg? Well, as we develop the text this morning, there's much that comes clear about these items that really help us to understand not only what we can do for others, but especially what God can do for us. Now, as we think about this introduction of friendship, I'd like for you for just a moment to think about another introduction, an introduction to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was written at a time from the man, the prophet Isaiah, who was serving the southern kingdom, Judah. During his life, the northern kingdom would literally be destroyed by the Assyrian reign. Now, imagine that. Don't just hear it as fact. Imagine that. Your job is to go about and to tell people you need to turn back to God so that you're not destroyed. And the whole time he's watching the northern nation that would not turn back to God being destroyed. As a matter of fact, as a young man, he watched the northern kingdom be completely destroyed. Later in life, 13 years later, he would watch just north of them, Samaria, be destroyed by the Syrians. And before his death, he would actually see 46 of the walled cities of his southern kingdom be destroyed also by the Assyrians. And they would have destroyed Jerusalem. But in the 36th and 37th chapter of Isaiah, an angel of the Lord comes out and stops the enemy just at the gates of Jerusalem. You see, friends, if I'm going to appreciate a study of the book of Isaiah, I have to recognize the fact that he did his ministry under the shadow of the Assyrians as they seemed to be successful at every turn almost. And yet, during all of this pleading, his people, they were prospering. Many of them were wealthy. Many of them were immoral. Even the priests and the religious leaders were beginning to buy in to the wickedness so that they could prosper themselves. And Isaiah, passage after passage, is pleading with them, change your life. We're going to be destroyed. Turn to God and allow Him to protect us. If you want to see just one instance of what maybe what would help us to understand the book of Isaiah before we go back to our theme, turn back in the beginning of Isaiah and look at Isaiah the first chapter. Look at Isaiah the first chapter and we'll read 16, 17, and 18 just to help us get a taste of the book itself. And then we'll go right back to the text that's been capably read for us and see an example of two that had influence. And one of the two, God says in, in his actions, I don't want you to have influence on my people. And the other God is saying, I want you to have influence on the people. And then let's decide this morning which we're going to be. But notice this if you think about the theme of Isaiah. Look in verse 16 of the first chapter. He says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. 
put away the evil of the doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Now notice, they were going to have to learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. You see, these are all the things that they have failed to do. And he's saying, I want you to learn these things again. Become these things again. Now there's hope because of the grace of God. Look at 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In other words, as white as wool. There was hope for Judah. And Isaiah wanted them to see they had that hope if they would turn to God. Remember we said even some in very important positions had stopped serving God? We just had read for us a scripture about Shebna. Look back, if you will, at Isaiah, the 22nd chapter. When we look at Shebna, we look at a man who was self-centered. We see that he promoted himself. We see that he served his own interest. Notice as he's described in the 15th verse of Isaiah, the 22nd chapter. It says, thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go, proceed to this steward to Shebna, who is over the house. Now pause here for just a moment. You see already we have set up the idea that he had the keys. You know, when we think about keys, we think about access. We think about who has access to your house. You say, well, I keep the keys to my house. Is there anybody else that maybe you've put them over something in your house, and when you're away, you expect them to take the keys to your house and to go into your house, and maybe it's take care of an animal that's in your house. Maybe it's take care of plants. Maybe it's to take care of maintenance. But you see, they have become a steward of something, so therefore they need access into your house. Who had the keys to the house of David? Shebna had the keys. He had a great responsibility. The house of David, the king's house, What a wonderful and powerful position that he had. But notice how he used this position. Look with me at verse 16. As the Lord says, What have you here? And whom have you here? We'll come back to those two phrases in just a moment. Notice what he did about a sepulcher as we read on in 16. He hewed out for himself a sepulcher on high who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. Now what's the setting of the day? Assyria to the north is just plowing their way through. They are conquering the northern kingdom. They're going to conquer Samaria. They're going to start conquering a lot of the southern kingdoms. God's leaders should be turning God's people back to God. The emphasis of God's leaders ought to be, I want to serve God and I want to serve the people to get them back to God. And what is he doing? Well, I guess I'm not going to live a lot longer, so I want to find a place where I will be memorialized. I want my sepulcher to be up high, and I want it to be hewed out in stone so that it will always be there, so that it will always be seen. Friends, he is not working for the people at this point. He is not serving God. He's not promoting the cause of God. He's serving himself. He is literally promoting himself. And do you notice what the Lord asked him? The Lord came up in 16 and says, What have you here? Who do you think you are? Now, there's some of you that that rings a really negative uh, feeling within your mind because you remember when you were a child 
how often you heard your mom or your dad whenever you did something really bad and they would throw out, who do you think you are? Or they would come in and they would look at some kind of destruction or mess and they would say, what do we have here? You know, at that time as a child, you want to just say, you can see what it is. You, we don't have to talk about this. Let's just pretend it didn't happen. I remember when Lacey was, was a little taught, she decided that going into the church bathroom with a permanent marker and coloring on the backs of the commode would be a really neat thing. And the problem is she didn't think it was neat after the first commode. She did every stall, permanent markers, on the seats. That's one of those instances where you walk into a little toddler and you, what have you done? Who do you think you are? You see what the Lord is doing here? He's speaking to one of his children that is really making a foolish mess of his life. At a time when the people need you, at a time that you ought to be serving me, God is saying, who are you really? You're not serving of me. You're not doing things that's helping the kingdom, that's helping the people. What a shame. Now, we're not going to take the time to read the following verses, but friends, the Lord makes it very clear. If, if you took a piece of paper and just tried to throw a piece of paper, how far could you throw it? A flat piece of paper. Somebody says, let me wad it up. That's what he says to Shebna in the following verses. He says, I tell you what I can do. I can roll you up. I can wad you up and I can throw you like a ball into the next country. Kind of sounds what parents say sometimes, doesn't it? And then he says, I can cast you out and I can drive you out of your position. Now we will study that because he does cast him out and he does drive him out of the position that he has. But before we go on to the influence that God did want. Let's look at this next slide, and I'd like for you to think about this simple fact. Self-promotion, that's what he was doing. Self-promotion is always God demotion. I'd like for you to just meditate on that for just a moment. The next time at work you want people to think you're all that, just remember you've decided to demote God in your life. The next time among your peers you think you need to brag a little bit and make sure that you're seen, you've decided to demote God in your life. Friends, there is no way that we can promote self and promote God in one life at one time. And Daniel, we don't have a slide for this. If you want to turn, I'm just going to make a quick reference. I want you to notice in Daniel, the fourth chapter. In Daniel, the fourth chapter, in the Bibles, it's in your pews. It's on page 784. There is a long story that's a powerful story about pride and humility. And it's a story of Nebuchadnezzar and how he continually looked over his kingdom. And it seems that the more he looked over it, the more he took credit for it instead of realizing God was the one that gave him that kingdom. And so as we pick up in this story, he was told through the interpretation of a dream that if he didn't humble himself, he was going to lose this kingdom. And he continued, though, to say, look what I've done for myself. And in 34, which in 33 was when he was sent out to pasture to live like an animal. You see, he's been humbled. 
and he grows long fingernails like bird's claws. He grows what would be like eagle's feathers the way his hair is, and he has dew of the morning every morning on his back. It's a terrible setting that for seven seasons, maybe that was seven years, but for seven seasons he lived like that. But notice when things changed for a positive in his life. Verse 34, and at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored Him who lives forever. There was a time where he didn't lift his eyes up. There was a time where he wanted a mirror for his eyes. Look at me. Look how powerful I am. There was a time where his understanding was, it's all about me. Friends, what kind of friend is that? Have you ever had a friend that's all about themselves? It's all about self-promotion? Not only is that friend struggling with earthly relationships, that's the second point. Self-service is a robbery of relationships. We can't have a good relationship and be self-serving. We have the strongest relationships when we say, I want to exalt you. I want to put you on the gold podium. I'll take the silver or the bronze. I want to serve you. I want to lift you up. But how does that come about? Friend, that genuine humility doesn't come about unless we're genuinely humble in our relationship with God. It wasn't until Nebuchadnezzar recognized that he needed to be humble to God that this could happen. Now, notice verse 37. This is really neat how he ties it up. Now I, in other words, now that he's gone through all this, he's lifted his own self up and then he's been humbled by God and now he is humbled and he lifts and exalts God. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are true and his ways just and those, now notice this sentence, those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Do you think that's going to happen to Shebna as we go back to our text in Isaiah, the 22nd chapter? He's walking in pride. He's making his own memorials. He's lifting himself up. Oh, yes. The Lord says, I'll throw you like a ball into a foreign country. I'll drive you out. I will take you out of your position. Let's go now to Isaiah, the 22nd chapter, verse 20. And notice the three things that he tells him that he's going to offer to Eliakim. Verse 20. Do you notice he called Elikim? He says, then it shall be in that day that I will call. Now, this is powerful. I'll call my servant. You see, he couldn't call Shebna his servant because he'd stopped serving him. Now, Shebna was his own servant. He was proud and arrogant. But he says, I have a replacement for you. I can take your keys and I can place them in someone else's hand and it will be my servant that I'll give it to. Now, notice what he's going to do. I'll clothe you with your robe and strengthen him with your belt, and commit his responsibilities to him. Look in 22. The keys of the house of David I'll lay on his shoulders. Look at 23. I'll fasten him as a peg in a secure place. Now, let's go back to 20, verse 20, and notice the teaching here. What's he going to offer him? He's going to offer him a robe. We probably would think of a coat. It would be maybe even what we would think of as a type of uniform where when individuals saw this, they would recognize this is the one that carries the keys of the house of David. Maybe there were certain fringes. Maybe it was a certain length. Maybe it was a certain color. Maybe there were certain things embroidered on it. 
But whatever it was, the Lord says, I'm going to take the robe away from you and I'm going to give it to him. Have you noticed how many times giving of a coat or giving of a robe has been transferred as a sign of love as we think about David and Jonathan, as we think about the prodigal son coming home and the father giving a robe? But notice there was also a belt. It was the belt of strength. When we think in Ephesians, the sixth chapter, the Christian armor, the soldier is to have on the waist girded with truth. The belt of strength, the belt of truth. And not only that, he says to him, I will commit to him your responsibilities in the house. Do you see what's happening here? He's saying, I'm going to make this man ready to do the job that you were supposed to be doing. I'm going to give him the things that I had given you, but yet you misused them. You remember the parable of the talents? Five talent, two talent, and one talent? The Lord, the Master, gave each one what they needed to do the job, but one did not do it and buried it. And what happened to the one that buried it? Not only was he cast away, but do you remember his was taken away and it was placed in the hands of someone that would use it, the ten-talent man at that point, because he doubled his five. You see, here is exactly what was being taught over in Matthew, the 25th chapter, with the parable of the talents. This man was not going to use it, Shebna, in the way that it ought to be used. And so it was taken away and it was given to Eliakim. Friends, it's not only the things that he needed, but it was also the opportunities that he needed. Notice as we look in verse 22, he wanted this kind of man to have an influence over the house of Israel. He's going to give him the keys of the kingdom of David. You see, he was going to have the one that would have access into the house of David. As we think about this access, it becomes very powerful. If you look over in Matthew, the 16th chapter, we don't have slides for these, but it's on page 866 in your pew Bibles. And look on, on Matthew, the 16th chapter. Do you remember when Jesus was talking to Peter? And this will really make you appreciate the passage that we're studying this morning, perhaps even more. In the 22nd chapter of Isaiah, you remember that when he spoke of the keys of the house of David, he said that whatever he shall open and no one shall shut, and what he shall shut, no one shall open. And when Jesus asked Peter, who do men say that I am? They gave the answer of prophets, etc. And says, but who do you say that I am? He said he was the son of the living God. And then he said, well, flesh and blood hasn't told you that. God has revealed that to you. And then in verse 18, he said, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. But notice what he tells him in 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Friends, there is no doubt that this language comes from the teaching of Isaiah 22 because notice how he continues this. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's another way of saying, I'm going to give you the keys and whatever you open, no man's going to shut it. Whatever you shut, no man is going to open. And you remember about 50 days after the death of Jesus Christ, the church began. How did the church begin? There were individuals that wanted to know what they needed to do to be saved, but they didn't have access. And it was Peter who was promised that I'll give you the key so that you can unlock it. And he stood the day the church was established and he gave them the keys so that they could have entrance into the kingdom. 
And no man can change the keys. No man can change the access. Whatever God through his apostles, through the scriptures, has left open is open, and whatever God has closed is closed. That's why it's even powerful when we go over to Revelation, the third chapter, and we have the seven churches of Asia, and he writes to the church of Philadelphia, and they had problems with some of the Jews wanting to claim that that was the only way to have access to the kingdom of God was to be a Jew. And he writes to them in Revelation, the third chapter in verse 7, to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write, These things say he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. You see, it's almost a direct quote there from Isaiah 22. What's he saying? He's saying, you want to change the way to have entrance into the kingdom? You can't change it. It's been set. God has set it. Well, who did God give those keys to in the old covenant? It's a type here. We're studying a type. He gave the keys to Eliakim, but yet it's a type of Jesus Christ who passed it on to the apostles, who recorded it, and now we have keys to the entrance only based upon what the Lord teaches. Now, we've got to make this last point and and close this lesson out. But as we go back to Isaiah, the 22nd chapter, notice not only did we read about a robe, and not only did we read about keys, but we read about a peg. And it's interesting what he says about that peg in 23. He says, our festival is a peg in a secure place. Now, notice what he's going to put on that peg, 24. They will hang on him all the glory of the father's house the offspring the posterity all vessels small quantity and from the cups to all the pitchers now here's a peg that i pulled out of a a board that that was one time a peg to hang coats how secure is that peg you can't answer that that peg is not secured in anything You and I don't know how secure it is until we see where it is placed. I want you to notice again the scripture. The security is not in the fact of the peg itself. Notice again in 23, I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place. Friends, if we take and we fasten this peg in just a little piece of cardboard and we hang our heavy coat on it, it's going to rip right out of the cardboard. But if we find a strong piece of wood, a stud in the wall, and we place it in a secure, solid piece of wood, it then should be a secure peg. Here we have the example of Shebna who was a peg who decided to place himself in his own hands And he wasn't a blessing to anyone. His nation could not benefit from him. And the Lord says, I'll take him away and I will place Eliakim in a place that is secure. Some of you are probably already thinking about the New Testament story that Jesus taught of this very same point. You remember those that hear the word of God and do it are like those who build their house on a rock. There are others that hear the word of God and don't do it. And they build the same house, but they build it in sand. One place is very insecure. The other place is very secure because it's built on the foundation. And the rains come and the floods rise and the winds blow. And this house stands secure. Friends, can people trust you? 
Can God trust you? Can you be trusted to hang a relationship on? Can you be trusted with possessions? Can you be trusted with a friendship? You see, if I don't have my life in a secure place in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm not as secure as what I must be in order to persevere. This morning, we've seen the influence of two individuals. They both had influence over Judah. And the Lord looks at one and says, I don't want that kind of influence on my people. And he looks at the other and he says, that's the kind of influence I want. I'm going to give him the robe. I'm going to give him the keys. I'm going to place him as a peg in a secure place so that he can bless the people. Friends, this morning, every one of us, we're like one of those two. We either have an influence. Let's advance a slide here. We have an influence where we're either promoting ourselves and we're self-serving, or we have an influence where we serve God and we receive His blessings. One makes a great friendship and the other doesn't. Friends, there's a friend. There's a friend like no other. What a friend we have in Jesus. He serves us when we don't deserve to be served. He serves us and picks us up in ways that no one else can pick us up. And the blessing is that when we serve Him, we become a better friend to every relationship we have. Are you saved? Have you been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins because you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? You're willing to repent of sins. You're willing to confess before men. And you want to be baptized to wash those sins away. Maybe you've been baptized into Christ and you haven't been secure. You haven't stayed there. And you want to come back to Him this morning and pray forgiveness. If we can help you, we're about to sing a song of invitation. If you'd like to come forward, we would love to know how we can help you. If later on, after the service, you say, I'd love to sit down and study, we'd love to sit down and simply study God's Word so we all can know what is it to have access to God. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.